welcome to the All Things AFib podcast. This is your host, Dr. Armin Kionkui, and I am a practicing cardiothoracic surgeon who specializes in the treatment of atrial fibrillation. Throughout my career, I've been blessed to work side by side with some of the brightest minds in atrial fibrillation treatment, diagnosis, and prevention. And the whole purpose of this podcast is to share those insights with you by giving you a front row seat to intimate conversations with AFib experts from around the world. So turn up the volume, sit back, relax, and enjoy the conversations. Thanks for listening. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of the All Things AFib podcast. This is your host, Dr. Armin Kion Kui. In this episode, I speak with Dr. Jared Bunch. He's a professor of medicine at the University of Utah. He is a clinical electrophysiologist, a clinical scientist. He is the editor on basically every major impactful electrophysiologic journal, including Heart Rhythm Control Journal, Jack EP, the American Heart Association, you name it, he's on it. He has over 300 peer-reviewed journal articles. Um, He did his initial training at the Mayo Clinic in Rochester and then was an associate professor at Stanford before moving to Intermountain. And as I said, he is now professor of medicine at the University of Utah. The reason I asked Jared to come on board today was to really discuss his latest area of research, which is the relationship between dementia and atrial fibrillation. And we dive right into this. We get into kind of the clinical presentation of dementia, the mechanism of it, how it relates to atrial fibrillation, some really kind of interesting and thought-provoking topics of biomarkers, kind of circulating blood biomarkers that may predict dementia in these patients, the risk factors, kind of types of AFib, duration of AFib, and then really kind of something that blew my mind was the magnitude of the risk of dementia in folks who have atrial fibrillation and how it really affects younger patients more than it does older patients. So really that's something that I took away that I'm going to be incorporating into my practice and my clinical conversations when I'm talking to my quote-unquote asymptomatic young patients with atrial fibrillation. So I had a phenomenal conversation with Dr. Bunch. I learned a ton. We also touch on his book, The AFib Cure. And so again, I hope you enjoyed this conversation as much as I did with Dr. Jared Bunch on the relationship between atrial fibrillation and dementia. All right. Well, everyone, welcome back to another episode of the All Things AFib podcast. On the show today, I have the pleasure of speaking with Dr. Jared Bunch. He hails from the University of Utah. He's actually from Utah, if I read correctly, going back through your history, and then did most of his training in the sunny mountains of Rochester, Minnesota. (laughs) (laughs) Not a lot of sun or mountains, but a lot of corn still, a lot of cold. Exactly, exactly. But obviously you got some phenomenal training there. You were an associate professor at Stanford for a while while you were at Intermountain Healthcare, and now you're at the University of of Utah, where you're a professor of medicine, super busy clinical researcher, super busy clinical EP, and countless number of editorial board staff and everything that um, the, the listener got a preview for in the introduction to this. So thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you for inviting me. It's my pleasure. Awesome. Every time I listen to you give a talk, whether it's at a meeting or an HR course or whatever it is, honestly, I find myself going back to my own practice and changing it ever so slightly. And I think that just kind of speaks to how impactful your research has been really kind of the clinical relevance of it. Something that's really kind of caught my ear, and obviously a lot of us who are in the field, is your kind of more recent emphasis on AFib and the relationship with dementia. So I was hoping we could spend some time talking about that. Sure, it'd be my pleasure. Awesome. So maybe we'll kind of take it back a little bit. Just talk about what is dementia for those folks who aren't in healthcare. Why do we care about dementia? What is it? Well, and I think it's important that we care. One, because as countries develop and they improve medical treatment for other diseases, it's one of the most common causes we die from. And in fact, the recent United Kingdom data, the English data, nearly one third to almost 40% died of dementia. And so it's very common. But what it's really defined as, and there's multiple causes, but it's where your cognitive function, your, your memory, how you execute in the community, 
the deficits are significant enough that they become moderate where they impact how you function, how you interact, your quality of life, and they can be moderate to severe. And ultimately, it's made by our neurology colleagues, but people and families recognize the inroads of the symptoms really early. Absolutely. You mentioned this a lot in your papers, a lot in your talks, but I think it's important too to just state that dementia is not normal right? It's not a normal part of aging. I think sometimes we get in these conversations with our patients and they start to say things like, well, I'm getting older, I'm getting tired, I'm starting to forget things, I'm not quite as bright as I used to be. And it's important to talk about how dementia is not normal. Just because we get older doesn't mean that we're going to have dementia. You're absolutely right. And it robs people of both quantity and quality of life. And it's atypical aging and disease of the brain. And so very much so we need to talk about it. We need to begin preventing it, not only for patients, but for ourselves, for our family members. And we do see that a lot. Many people with atrial fibrillation, they're older. And so they attribute a lot of the symptoms to just say, well, I should feel this way. I'm 75. I should feel this way. I'm getting older. But in fact, that, that's not necessarily true. And how, how we manage symptoms of fibrillation and fibrillation itself can really influence how they feel, even though they're 75. Sure. And so how do you go about coming to that diagnosis of dementia in, let's say, your AFib patient? Sometimes it's easy. I often share the story of how I got interested in this field. And, and I admitted a patient who was a salesman, who was gregarious, told stories. And he was sitting in his bed and, and above his head was his heart monitor. And he would just tell stories. And I'd ask him a question. And he had a story. And when his heart was in normal rhythm, he spoke freely. But when he converted to fibrillation, he would stop. And then his wife, would, who had heard the stories a million times, would just start filling in. And then when he would convert back to a normal rhythm, he would proceed and say, I have this senior moment. And I thought that was this amazing real-time view of how a heart rhythm could influence the brain. And so I think the first question is we have to ask questions beyond what we normally do with atrial fibrillation. We often say, does your heart feel like it's racing? Do you feel short of breath? Do you have energy intolerance? Well, that may be important for a 40-year-old, but a person who's 90 that has hip replacements and knee replacements, they don't really notice. They just want to get up the stairs more so than feeling that they feel their heart a little fast. So we have to ask the right questions. We have to know the company that dementia keeps, and that's often depression and a depressed mood. And so also be asking questions in that regard. And more importantly, it's they often ask the spouse. So this to the salesman, he never noticed anything. He just thought this was getting older. But to ask his wife, she'd say, well, yeah, he's been doing this a lot. He forgot his car keys. And he got lost coming from home from the same way he always went to the grocery store. And the family early on starts seeing things. And, and often the patient does, but as dementia progresses, sometimes the personal awareness is less than the, the people around them. So we do have to just recognize it's, it's there and it's common. And then we have to start asking the right questions. Yeah, it's really interesting because we often find ourselves in clinic really only asking, have you had a stroke? Have you had a TIA? And we really don't, at least I'm guilty of it. I really don't get into more of those granular type questions. Like, are you forgetful? Is this interrupting kind of your normal cognition? You know, your ability to carry on a conversation, things like that. And I know you've mentioned that in the past too, where a lot of us are fixed on that stroke outcome with AFib. You've put this phrase out there where stroke really is kind of the tip of the iceberg. You want to talk to us a little bit more about that? Yeah. That's a great question. And we, we've often for years, our, our end point and our end goal with atrial fibrillation is clinical stroke. And that clinical stroke is variable, but it's usually stroke with a significant deficit. And so that's just one part of this. You can have smaller strokes with maybe less of a deficit that's not immediately apparent. You can have bleeds that are large or smaller. But more importantly is this concept of silent stroke. And we, there's a recent study, the Swiss atrial fibrillation study, that took patients when they came in with atrial fibrillation, they did an MRI, and then they followed them two years and repeated the MRI. And about 2% of people had a clinical stroke. But if they took the MRI imaging, that incidence doubled. In fact, over 4% did. And then they looked at people and, and tested them with a battery of testing. And it didn't matter if you had a quote-unquote subclinical stroke or a clinical stroke, both of them 
significantly impacted cognition and memory and recall. And so I think that's a misnomer, that subclinical stroke. So those are two parts of this iceberg, but underlying that is small repetitive events that and that ultimately your brain adapts to, but then you lose adaptation and you have dysfunction or small clinical bleeds. And that same Swiss atrial fibrillation study at the baseline. So the first time people were had atrial fibrillation and got an image, they looked at microclots, microbleeds, white matter disease, prior stroke, and all of those correlated with cognitive decline. So there's a lot going on in the brain, and and it happens early. We took patients from the Intermountain. The healthcare system. And with their first diagnosis of atrial fibrillation, we could collect, they had stored serum around there and we could measure markers of brain injury. They were small, the same markers that we measure for concussion response, but they were small and elevated. So it's happening early. And that's why we just have to be proactive from the very beginning. How can we improve brain health? Wow. You touched on so much there. Going back to some of the first things you talked about as far as mechanisms. So is it correct to say that part of the mechanism are microbleeds, part are microclots or strokes, if you will? And what about this hypoperfusion uh, I've, I've heard you talk about? Like, Do we have any idea what the, the ratios of those impacts are or anything like that? Yeah, that's a great question. We, they're not mutually exclusive. We, we do think we have one pathway that we've studied for almost a decade, which we call recurrent ischemic events, and that can be the small or large clots or bleeds. It's been known for every, you know, the initial dementia with atrial fibrillation was multi-embolic or stroke dementia, but going from that severe cascade to all those things we've talked about. But that wouldn't explain my salesman at all, who had dynamic cognitive change with rhythm. And so that leads to an area we've been exploring more and more, and that's how the, the brain perfuses and adapts. When you go into atrial fibrillation, you lose anywhere from 10 to 20% of your efficiency by loss of synchrony, but you also have periods where the heart's quite rapid and there's periods where it's quite slow and it's all dependent on the medications used and the governance of the heart. And that can influence the brain over time. And we, what's interesting is how, when we, we do volume studies, perfusion studies of the brain, the area is most sensitive to decreased flow or what we call the infrotemporal lobes in a lot of the area where memory is classically stored. We minimize the time that you have your tooth that improves. When we cardiovert or shock the heart to normal, those regions perfuse and improve. I think most interesting, we, we have a study that we have submitted to a paper. It's in revision, it's submitted for publication, but it's in revision. And, and I may have shown this with you, but that was when we took a healthy animal is a young dog big enough to study and normal function and, and they have this network of vessels in their neck so it traps clots so we can study the brain independence of clots we put the dog into atrial fibrillation and then we measure how the brain adapts how it you know with stress does it improve its perfusion and its capacity and the dogs as soon as you put them into fibrillation they immediately have a maladaptive response. And over time that gets better, but it never fully improves. So the rhythm is associated with decreased compensation, decreased adaptation of the brain. And that's an area we're just starting to explore. But if that's really important, that early on how we manage the rhythm through a variety of approaches, that that becomes an important question to ask and study. Yeah, that's fascinating. It seems like that's another layer that we often don't talk about clinically, right? We talk about the clots, we talk about the bleeds, but then this idea that maybe our vasculature isn't as adept at compensating with the irregular perfusion is kind of wild. That's, a, that's definitely something I don't speak about clinically with my patients. It happens commonly. And one of the things that we have a lot of elderly patients that are, have pacemakers and they start to develop symptoms of cognitive decline and dementia. We often have their, their pacemaker set at a rate that's, that's normal, like 60 or 70. But should they be 80? Should they be 90? Should you increase rate to improve compensation? All of those questions need to be answered. We submitted a grant in that regard, and we haven't got a taker on it yet, but nobody quite knows. And it's likely that we can do things that may help these people with their quantity and quality of life and their cognitive function, but we just have to start doing all these studies. 
Right. It's really interesting. You would think that there would have been more study in this area because we've known for a while the hemodynamic consequences of AFib, right? And you can go back decades and, and we talk about the atrial kick and decrease in cardiac output. But it, it is kind of funny that it's taken people like yourself to really dive into it to help us make that link between cardiac performance and cognitive malperfusion decline. I mean, it's, it's fascinating. Yeah, I think some of it's just the siloed medicine we work in. If you get cognitive climate dementia, then you're moved over to the geriatricians or hospice or dementia care facilities and not necessarily push back to cardiologists. If you are, they're thinking about the heart. So some of, it, some of the things get lost in that. But what's interesting is the same things we see with the brain. There's many other organs that are also sensitive to all these things you can see the same parallels. So I think as more people start to explore and more good minds come together, it will advance quickly and we'll get a lot of new therapeutics and concepts to help. One thing you mentioned earlier about biomarkers, is that an area where you're using biomarkers clinically or is that strictly research at this point? So more research than not, but we at Intermountain under the leadership of Ben Horn, they Intermountain and took common blood markers, your basic metabolic profile, which includes kidney function and you know sodium, potassium, chloride, and your complete blood count and how it looks and its morphology. He was able to form an Intermountain risk score for adverse outcomes. And in part of the medical record, it would also delineate this risk score saying low, moderate, high. And it applies very well to the stroke prediction, the CHADS VAS score, and it helps to define risk profiles in that where it's normally low, moderate, high. Uh, so it's been used for that. It hasn't been used for dementia, although we can retrospectively, retrospectively apply it. it. It predicts dementia risk quite nicely, but it hasn't been prospectively applied. But so there's a little bit of work with that. I think it's a fertile area for artificial intelligence where we can aggregate massive data. And uh, when we start using, considering the EKG as a risk predictor, simple chemistries and, and tests that we all get, we just, I think that's really a nice area for AI. Absolutely. One of the reasons I ask that is because I'm sure you face the same thing in clinic all the time, right? You get a 65-year-old who comes into clinic with a di new diagnosis of AFib, and they say, hey, doc, I'm, I'm asymptomatic. Do I really need to treat my AFib? And I, where I was going with that is, would there be a way to do a blood panel, identify these markers? Maybe they don't have clinical dementia, let's say, but they have some elevated biomarkers. And you can turn around and say, hey, look, you know, just like your sodium, just like your crit, you know, your INR, all these things. Hey, look, you have an elevated XYZ, which is telling me that you have some risk factors or not risk factors for dementia, but ongoing insult to your brain. Yeah, you're thinking a lot right along what we were what we're interested in. And and we have a prospective trial for that patient that's done and rolling. It's called the concussion atrial fibrillation trial. And again, we're using those biomarkers that they test that have been validated with concussions, a variety of others. We took people with their initial diagnosis of atrial fibrillation, measured them, and then we're measuring them serially over time. And also when they have interventions that they, they underwent an ablation or a surgical maze or a cardioversion. And then those will be correlated with cognitive batteries over time. So I'll, I don't have that data now, but we're trying to get it because we, we think so. We think we can take somebody. And we'd also like to know, you know, say that 65-year-old is a little bit heavy, has sleep apnea, has high blood pressure. And he just gets serious about lifestyle modifications. He reduces alcohol or eliminates it. He exercises, he loses weight. He's no longer overweight, hypertensive. Is he still the same risk he was a year before he started that? And we don't know. We don't have no way to measure that. So we think biomarkers have a role, not only in risk prediction, but maybe helping to guide therapies and people that adopt changes or maybe start disease modifying medications that we have for heart failure. So it's a great question. It's one we hope to have some good data for. I'm blind. I'm the PI, so I'm blind to all the outcomes. <laughs> yeah, for sure. I didn't have a little bit of data to share with right, you. Right, right. It has been enrolled 
And we're probably towards the second year. So I suspect we'll be able to publish some of that data in about a, well, we'll, we'll probably get it back in a year. So maybe about 12 to 18 months, start getting okay. some of the data out. Okay. Now we've been kind of speaking generically, if you will, about atrial fibrillation and dementia and risk factors. And I would love for you to speak to this. I've read it in your papers, but can you kind of discuss the magnitude of risk with AFib and its relationship to dementia? So for those who are listening, like how much does AFib affect your risk of dementia? Yeah. And uh, so I could use the Utah data. So we don't fully know how applicable it is across different populations. Utah is approximately, I would say, 50% are Caucasian to 55, another 20% Hispanic, 5 to 10% Pacific Islander, a heritage, Hawaiian heritage, and then people that identify as Black race, probably 5%. So each community has different characteristics. But what we found in the one study that's that's found similar data and has replicated our data was England, which probably doesn't maybe change that demographic mix much. Maybe a little bit more, but not that much. But but we found that dementia preferentially impacts younger people with atrial fibrillation. So that risk between an atrial fibrillation patient from 60 to 70, 70 to 80, 80 to 90 changes. From 60 to 70, that risk is anywhere from about 40 to 50% higher to almost 100% higher. As you get a little bit older, it starts to go down actually. And most people, you're looking at raising that risk kind of in that 40 to 50% range. And it's clearly driven by, do you have high blood pressure? Do you have diabetes? Do you have metabolic syndrome? Do you have high markers of inflammation? Do you have heart failure? Do you have prior strokes? And stroke is probably, stroke in eight, stroke is the strongest augmenter of risk, obviously, because it impacts the brain directly. And then as you get older, that that relative ratio when you're 80 to 90 goes down to about 20%. And some of that could be survival bias and things like that. And the United Kingdom found the same thing. They used above 65 and below and found those below 65 were at higher risk. But they had data that we didn't. And they found that not only the presence of atrial fibrillation was important, but the duration of time you live with it. So younger patients, longer exposure tended to be uniquely at risk. Right. And that's exactly what I was going to ask you about next is, do we have any idea of kind of the duration of time of diagnosis, at least the AFib with relationship to that age? And I think you nailed that right there. So, And one of the big challenges, we don't have a good way of knowing in the community how long you've had it for all these studies. And it'll be interesting, the people self-diagnosing with Fitbit, Apple Watch and Google, we may start getting some of that data from industry partners and starting to put some of these things together. Right. Absolutely. You're, you're totally answering all my questions before I get to ask them. I love it. I love it. No, you know, I, cause it's, I was really curious, you know, with this, I, cause that's kind of a black box for all of us, right? Like our patients come to clinic and we ask them, how long have you had AFib? And they say, well, I haven't felt right for since 2009, but my first diagnosis on an EKG or one thing or another was four months ago. And then you're kind of like, well, gosh, have they had AFib for 15 years or have they had AFib for four months? I was curious to know what you thought, how wearables are going to affect kind of our ability, one, to diagnose, and then two, more importantly, like to help us identify the impact of AFib over time, like you had just talked about, because maybe they've had it longer than we, we would have otherwise thought. Well, and I think they're going to help a lot. You know, they're, they're not perfect. They're accurate kind of in that 80 to 90% range. And they make the same mistakes we do clinically when we look at telemetry, but they're getting better and smarter. All the wearables miss things because they have to spot check. They're not continuous monitors. So what, what they do pick up is longer episodes or symptomatic episodes. And I think they do it at a reasonable rate and in, in accuracy. So I think what that does is it, it moves the the window of diagnosis. And so people that may have been in it for years or now, if they have mild symptoms, they know what the symptoms correlate with. We're picking up subclinical rhythm. And anybody who sees H fibrillation patient, it it fills our practice. We just see a lot of people coming with their their smartphone or their watch-based data. And it gets somewhat at that premise. If we know that untraditional ways of diagnosing atrial fibrillation, when you have the rhythm, you come into the office, they do an EKG, 
we already know there's injury at that time. So this now gives us an earlier chance to intervene and, and change tra- trajectory. So in all the studies with atrial fibrillation tend to align that earlier we treat you know, within that first year, or if we treat before you have episodes of, of up to 24 hours, you tend to do better. So hopefully we can engage people earlier for that. And, and you know, and some people get that first detection and they don't want to see a physician, but they get online and they're like, well, I'm going to sleep better, stop drinking, exercise, and try and do a lot of things on their own, trying to, to lower their risk. So I think they have a great, that they're going to be a great tool for us. We can manage all the data that they're providing. Unfortunately, you know, one in 20 to 30% of us will get atrial fibrillation and that's based on the old data. So that rate's going to go up now that we can self-diagnose. Sure. Yeah. And I think what you said earlier, I mean, could you imagine the difference in response from, let's say, a 62-year-old who's in their primary care's office and that primary care doc says, yeah, you have AFib and your risk of dementia is 50% higher than if you didn't have AFib. I mean, I don't know about you, but if I was a 62-year-old and my primary told me that, the next thing I'd be doing is going straight to my EP. Yeah. I mean, that's that's a huge, that's that's a compelling statement. And we're trying to, so there's a trial called the Heartline trial, and I'm part of their, their steering committee for that. And it's really that question, what happens when a smartphone tells you you have atrial fibrillation? And what do people tend to go to their doctors? Do they tend to get put on anticoagulation? Can we help if we make, say, Google or Apple smarter by giving educational prompts saying, by the way, you know, atrial fibrillation is correlated with this, this, and this? These are steps you can take. So that trial is going to hopefully answer some of those questions. How much of an impact do these watches make? And, and does it mean something long-term? And so it'll be interesting to see. I, we see it anecdotally in clinic. We see patients come in early and where we used to see people not uncommonly in the hospital, they had a stroke and that's the first time they knew they had atrial fibrillation. We see people come in early and had no awareness that their heart was out of rhythm, but the watch said your, your heart's out of rhythm. Right, right. You know, seek medical care. Right. And then I was, I wanted to ask you, maybe you can tackle these one at a time. Do we have an idea of the, the beneficial effect of either anticoagulation in AFib and how that affects your risk for dementia and rate versus rhythm control? and how that affects your risk for dementia with AFib. Can you speak to those? Yeah, so we, we do have data on anticoagulation. In large nationwide studies in Sweden and Utah, anticoagulation use lowers risk of dementia significantly you know, by 30 to 40%. And most of the benefit is when it started early within that first year. Ideally, that first one to two years, if we wait during fibrillation four or five years, we almost see no benefit at all because these injuries have occurred. And so we know the use of anticoagulation is important. When we look at warfarin, where the levels can go up and down and be variables, recumbent the other name, people that had very well-managed warfarin had much lower rates of dementia in a setting where we were testing their cognition repetitively. What we haven't found is that the newer agents are superior to warfarin that's well-controlled. So in those patients that they never changed their warfarin dose. There's really not a need to switch, at least for dementia, to a newer anticoagulant. However, in those that if they're changing all the time and they're rarely in their goal, there's there's fairly compelling data that they should probably go there to prevent subclinical strokes and bleeds, dementia, and cognitive decline. So I think there's data on early use and uh, efficacy of, of the drug we're using. For rhythm, we take our most aggressive rhythm control approach, ablation, that's our most durable. And it's, it's not perfect, but it's our most durable and effective way to keep you in a normal rhythm. People that have, a, have an ablation tend to have lower rates of dementia than patients that don't get an ablation. But what's really interesting is their dementia rates are very similar to those that never have fibrillation. So people in the community that we don't see fibrillation. So we, we have some compelling background data to suggest that how we treat the rhythm is important. We just need to study it in a perspective manner to make sure what we see is true. And that would hold true to also some of the minimally invasive surgical approaches that also may be even more effective in some patients than ablation. Can they lower that in, in the surgical approach, in particular one called the convergent procedure? 
where you remove the appendage, which is a source of clot, could that even be more additive? And I think those are all really interesting questions to answer. Yeah, it's really interesting. You know, we have some good data in the in the surgical literature where for folks who've had surgery who don't have AFib, we look at their survival, whether it's a Cabot or an AVR or mitral, what have you. And then folks who have AFib don't get their AFib treated at the time of surgery. And then folks who have AFib who get it treated at surgery and then don't have AFib postoperatively. And we can see that for folks who get their AFib treated effectively, their survival curve kind of goes back to where it should be. It's as if they never had AFib to begin with. As you were telling me about dementia and survival, and if you treat dementia effectively with a rhythm control strategy, that they kind of go back, or if you treat the AFib, I'm sorry, effectively with the rhythm control strategy, it's as if they never had it in the first place as far as their dementia risk. Kind of made me think of that. And it also, it kind of makes me think, is some of our survival or are some of our survival data driven by the ability to mitigate dementia? Well, again, in the brain, it's just one of the organs. It's easier for us to measure because it's involved in executive function. But when we look at fibrillation and these same paradigms, we can see higher rates of dry macular degeneration, higher rates of diabetes, higher rates of kidney dysfunction. So other things that we can measure. So yeah, the body systemically may respond better to this predictable perfusion and more predictable cardiac output on a, on a macro and microvascular level. Right. It's interesting you mentioned convergent because the other thing I wanted to ask you about is East AFNet 4, right? We learned about earlier treatment and folks who had you know paroxysmal AFib. In that study cohort, it seemed like there wasn't necessarily a difference in cognitive function, at least based on the evaluation tools that they used. It made me think what you just said is so true, that if you catch it early enough, right, if, if you enact the rhythm control strategy early enough, you can keep the cognitive decline from happening. But if you're out a year, if you're out two years, as you kind of move through the progression, one, maybe the type of AFib matters, and two, the duration matters, like you had mentioned earlier, that weighs quite heavily in that in that space. Yeah, I agree completely. We wrote the editorial for that. Really, the title was Timing Matters for the East Area. And it wasn't necessarily a trial ablation. Ablation was one of the options and a minority option you use. But the other interesting thing about East AFNet, it highlighted opportunities to to treat. And at the end of the two years of study, the over 90% were on an anticoagulant, which I've done an anticoagulant trial for the anticoagulant, 70% were on it at uh, two years. So it, that's remarkable. And nearly all were treated with antihypertensive drugs, cholesterol drugs. So they were doing things to really help body health because they recognize age fibrillation for what it is. It's a symptom of this systemic disease of the body, often driven by vascular disease. And, but it really shows what we can do if we actually identify something early and target it. Absolutely. And then you, the other part of the conversion procedure that you mentioned was managing the left atrial appendage. And maybe we have data, maybe we don't, but I'd love to get, get your opinion. Do you think there's an additive effect of anticoagulation and managing the appendage? And let's kind of take one device at a time, whether it's endo, endocardial management of the appendage or epicardial. Can you kind of, I would love to just kind of get your expert opinion on how you think all of those interact with dementia. Yeah, and I've, as the, the endocardial approaches, as the advocates know, I've, I've been a little bit of on the opposing side of it. And there's a few challenges to it. One is ischemic stroke rates after we use Watchman or Amplats are, are high, and they're higher than with anticoagulants consistently. And they're higher than with warfarin, despite all the warts of warfarin and the variability of it. So no matter what, those are higher, and they're offset by bleeding rates, whether they're gastrointestinal, general urinary, or intracranial, but you're almost doubling your ischemic stroke rate compared to, to, to newer anticoagulants. And then on top of that, and so what they historically said was the device wasn't that effective. It doesn't seal fully. It's, you know, it's tough to put in. There's a lot of complications. But with the, the recent Amulet Abbott device and the recent Boston Scientific Watchman device, it near 100% occlusion at six months. And the ischemic stroke rates didn't budge. They stayed the same as the older ones. 
And so a lot of the thoughts are, well, we need, we should manage antiplatelets, but antiplatelets in the community, there's anywhere from a two to 4% risk of bleed per year with those. So you're starting now to push your bleeding risk up with a device that augments ischemic stroke rate. So, but there is some interesting data, and I think it links into your question really nicely. The people that have really helped develop Watchman recently had a paper in Jack on anticoagulation use six months after. And so they took all these categories. Were they on warfarin? Were they on warfarin plus aspirin? Were they on aspirin alone? Were they on a novel anticoagulant? Were they on a novel anticoagulant with aspirin? And what they found is lots of people stay on anticoagulation, but the lowest stroke rates total and ischemic were in those that remained on warfarin at six months. So there's probably a room for for combined therapy with it. And the companies have been hesitant because people get referred to get off anticoagulation. But I think there's becoming an appetite to start testing that. And that's what leads to the surgical approach. And there was the surgical registry data was a little bit different than the made-up Mayo registry that often didn't show a significant benefit over time for stroke reduction. You didn't see an augmented risk. And if it was relatively neutral, if you look at the stroke rates, they were often at or a little bit higher than predicted. But now that in the Laos study, which was not a study of just let's clip the appendage as the primary strategy, it it was a study of let's clip the appendage, whether we sew it or clip it or ligate it and continue anticoagulation. And that study profoundly lowered stroke rates, almost cut them in half. And I think that came before the JAK study. So I think your colleagues, our surgical colleagues, have led this field to say it may have a role. We clearly know big clots are there. We know people that have had a big clot in the appendage, and it doesn't resolve with anticoagulation. But it's probably something we need to do in combination with a low dose of anticoagulation. And if I had my preference, err on surgical where you don't leave something in the heart, where you're critically dependent on an antiplatelet that conveys its own risk of bleeding over time, that as patients get older, that gets very close to the, the data with appropriately dosed apixaban or eloquist. So. Yeah, it's really interesting. You know, that's kind of one of the things I've, I've been learning from you. You know, when I go back to the clinic and I tell folks, you know, just like you said, they're coming often to clinic to get their AFib treated for kind of two reasons, right? One, they want to reduce their stroke risk. And two, they want to get off medications. Kind of everything else I find is they almost talk about secondarily, whether it's, you know, their risk of heart failure or kind of whatever, you know, their palpitations, something like that. And so here I am now thinking this situation in clinic where I say, okay, look, you can come in, we can do your surgical ablation, whether that's a hybrid, open, you name it, kind of whatever's going on. I'm going to manage your appendage. And now I'm kind of in this space where I'm trying to figure out, do I tell my patient, yes, you can come off your oral anticoagulation, or you know what, honestly, I think you should probably stay on it because it may help mitigate these microemboli, even if you're in a sinus rhythm, even if we have your appendage managed, is there some benefit to continued antiplatelet or anticoagulation? I struggle with that. I don't kind of don't know what to tell them right now. Yeah, well, I do too. So I understand that totally. I, I know I'm much more comfortable when there's a surgical ligation. And, we, and I tend to do CAT scans because they fill the appendage well. And look, you know, if there's an accessory appendage, if that's, there's no stub, there's no appendage leak. And I am much more comfortable with that. With For patients that are high risk, I talk to them more about this. But I think that, I think most people with high risk we understand that with moderate risk, though, I think there's opportunity to, to try to come off if, if it's a clean surgical removal. And if the percutaneous devices evolved to a point where there's true endothelialization that's complete, and there's even though there's a foreign body, it's sealed off. And that's been a difficult thing to achieve. But I think, too, we have to go back to the Blackshear data that defined all this. So I think it was 1976, they said, well, where do clots form in the heart? In rheumatic patients and non-rheumatic. It was just a study from the surgical team at Mayo of where they occur, and they wanted to know. And in patients that didn't have rheumatic heart disease, 90% were in the appendage, 10% were elsewhere. And then with rheumatic heart disease, I think that was 57% 
or in the appendage in 43 or elsewhere. So there's a lot of things that mimic mitral stenosis that can cause severe left atrial enlargement stasis. But I think what was interesting with Blackshear's study, despite what we would estimate a 2%, 4% stroke risk, is by far the most common site of, of thrombus was not in the heart. And so I think it gets back to the point that we probably need a systemic therapy too. What it is is what we have to sort out. I don't, I'm hesitant to think it's aspirin, but could it be a pixaban like 2.5 a day where there's almost no bleeding risk? I'd love to see that study done. And uh, because in one of the challenges is none of these drugs are generic, but there's a few, you know, dabigatrand is it's off patent now. And so hopefully there'll be some generics being met, made soon and then the others will follow. So if we can get a cheap drug and maybe in a small dose, ultimately really help. And I think people would be okay with that if they, when they bump themselves, they didn't have all this bruising or bloody noses and things that they worry about uh, knowing that it helps over time. But we really have to do the studies, but it started with the surgical louse study. It started now with the long-term watchman data saying, Wow, we actually do better stain on the anticoagulation. And now we can actually refine the dose and the type. Absolutely. It was an active topic of conversation during this past year's ISLA meeting as well. People were throwing around, well, how much? You know, is it the two and a half BID? You'd like to say that we take everybody off. We'd like to say that those who are getting treated are because they're oral anticoagulant intolerant. But gosh, it sure, it makes us feel better to have them on a little bit, you know? <laughs> <laughs> That's maybe all they need if you get rid of the appendage. I, it just, we had to get away from, it's a monotherapy. And there's still people that really push that it's a monotherapy. But that, even to that black shear data, should never, we should have never thought that because 10 to 40% of the time, we're missing the mark. And yeah. so I think we, we sort of made a mistake by going down that route. But I think people are coming around as we get more long-term data. How can we manage the watchman or the ambulance or the surgical occasion better over time? And, and I always, I tell them when they, when there's pushback, I said, just, yeah, do this study. I'll, I mean, I would love to take all my patients off anticoagulation. Yeah. So it's not that I, I'm wedded to anticoagulation, but I just haven't seen anything repl replace it yet from the data I've done that can meet, meet its outcomes. But uh, yeah, I'd love somebody to show that to me in a, in a well-powered study. Absolutely. You had mentioned kind of Chad's Basque earlier. Can I pick your brain on specific yeah. kind of numbers? Like when you talk about mild, moderate, severe, are you talking two, three, four? Kind of what are your Chad's Basque kind of cutoffs yeah. for these sorts of things? <laughs> so I think we're all a little bit different. Obviously, we recognize zero is, is low. I still, if, if it's female alone, Chad's Basque one, I consider that low even though it's a Chad's Vask one. So then one to two to me would be low to moderate. Two to four or two to five, depending on if it's gender added, would be moderate and then anything above high. And it's like everything, and that people fall largely in these, these two ends. There's a, lot, there's a lot of people that are low and a lot that are high in that category. But the problem is we, even in Chad's zero, Chad's one, there's, when we, there's measurable strokes in the community. So we know if we're misclassifying when we for genetic reasons, you know, uh, serum reasons that we tend to clot more. So that's, I think, some of the hesitancy towards moving towards a conservative strategy with use of anticoagulation. And, and some of, you know, as the Chad's VASC and Chad's score were being developed a lot with the work of Greg Lip and colleagues, say different nations that reported their data had markedly different outcomes with the Chad score. and between Asian populations and predominantly Caucasian populations. So uh, it's also, we also have to be careful when we consider different races and things like that with it. Gotcha. And then are there any kind of hard points other than Chad's Basque, let's say like echo measurements, L, you know, LA dimensions, depressed EF, is there anything else you're looking at that is specifically when you're talking about AFib and dementia that helps you guide kind of how aggressive you're going to be with treatment? There's a variety of them. Surface echo, like size of the left atrium helps, degree of diastolic dysfunction. For the TEE, the, the morphology of the appendage, whether it's heavily trabeculated, augment risk, the velocities, the entrance and exit velocities, all augment risk. So if you do have somebody that you know is on the fence, they're one, 
you know, a young 50-year-old with hypertension or a 65-year-old male without, sometimes these can help out. You know, I had a patient recently who was 65, endurance athlete, but his left atrium was massive and uh, severely enlarged. And for reasons we don't fully understand, his, his left ventricular diastolic and systolic function appear normal. But that patient, I said, well, you know, this... I would consider that a second risk factor because it's so enlarged beyond what I could be explained with endurance athletics. And so I do use some of those there. They all augment the, the CHADS vascular. The biggest challenge with CHADS, and you know this CHADS vascular is the, the predictive value is somewhere between, between 0.6 to 0.7. So it's only 60% accurate, 70. Initially, CHADS, CHADS was 50 to 60. It was like flipping a coin. And so you can take then these echo scores and you can raise it by about 10%. You can take kidney function, raise it by 10%. Burden may help as well. But uh, we, we don't have a, a score that's even close to 90 or above in risk prediction yet. Some of the AI stuff we did got into the low 80% using a bunch of different markers. So I think there's we're going to get there, but we're just not there with demographics-based scores right now. You've kind of mentioned it throughout the last half hour or so, but I want to absolutely make sure we touched on it because I can't even imagine the amount of work that went into your project with Dr. Day as well. It's called the AFib Cure. I have to mention it because we tweeted about it a little while ago. I finally got the book just under a year ago or so, and I got my way through it. Just for everyone who's listening, this is a phenomenal book. I don't care where you are in your career, where you are in your healthcare. If if AFib is at all of interest or important to you, I'm just going to kind of do a little name drop here, Jared, if it's okay. It's called The AFib Cure. Get off your medications, take control of your health, and add years to your life. And Jared and John Day co-authored this book, and it's a phenomenal book, super easy to read and very digestible. And I thought it had so much great information in there. Can you just talk to us about kind of what drove you to write that book, how, how the response has been? And I imagine that's kind of how you approach patient care in general. Yeah, I, I, a lot of the initial pathway and thoughts were from John Day. And he wrote a book called The Longevity Plan, where he went to these Chinese villages where it's not uncommon for people to live 100 to, to 100 years or older and try to understand some secrets of life. And it was social connectedness, staying active, staying employed and engaged in something you love, diets that are, that are fruit and vegetable based and with lack of, you know, uh, preservatives and processing. And it's some things we all knew. Most people recognize, I don't know, most people recognize how need, how much we need to be connected as we grow older and with people. And so then he was an expert in atrial fibrillation. We had done numerous studies together. And so they wanted to apply some of that to the atrial fibrillation cure. And so basically, it's sort of a, a number of different patients. Some of the challenges they went through, how there was opportunities to intervene in a preventative manner, ways that you can specifically, what he likes to call biohack, or, or, or try to, to alter your systemic inflammation, your risk towards arrhythmia. And then also some, some practical guidance. If none of that works and you need an ablation, what to ask. and what are things to look for and who does that? And, and a lot of people just assume that, you know, a doctor graduated and so they do a good job, but there's, there's value and experience and the value and experience and the people you work with. And, and so it will hopefully arm people to ask those questions and ask the right questions. We don't want to advocate everybody to see us because there's great doctors wherever you live. You just need to find them and and, uh, and ask questions because it's your health and take control. And, you know, cure in the uh, oncology literature and the oncology field is, can we put this in remission for five years or more? And we want to look at fibrillation like that, where we can, can we get it to go away for five years or more and, and have a long-term approach? But we were, we were thrilled about the response. It was a bestseller on Amazon for a number of weeks. I probably on the podcast, I'll tell you offline who, who, who passed us up one day. It was an interesting drug or, or, or book title, but uh, we still have about the same buys a week. It maintains this healthy volume each week. And, and just in my office, I have patients that bring it and uh, sign it for me. So, so I have a few copies just from patients. So we're, we're grateful for the support. 
we'll hopefully get a sequel out at some time with some of the new technologies. It's not in the word now, but we're hopeful that it helps people. That's the primary goal with it. You know, it's awesome. It provides such good context and content. It spells out some really nice practical ways for people to engage in their health, even down to like, hey, look, we know labs are daunting. No one wants to go get their blood draw, but hey, if you want to get your AFib under control, if you want to cure it, you should check X, Y, and Z in this sort of interval. These are the things that you should incorporate into your diet. I mean, it's super practical. I mean, I think honestly, someone can read it and you know, I'm not saying anything I'm sure you've, you've thought about a million times when you wrote the book, but for someone who obviously had no part in the book, who was just a reader like everyone else, I'm reading it and I'm like, wow, this is what we need in healthcare. We need these super tangible kind of digestible pieces of advice from experts like yourself and Dr. Day that someone can take to their doctor's office and look at and say, okay, yeah, I want to check my magnesium, my calcium, my potassium, my sodium. And I want to do it, you know, every six months, every 12 months. And it's, I thought it was just so well done. It was such a practical guide for patients who have AFib who, who want to engage in their healthcare. Thank you. Yeah, so we, thank you for doing that. We hope to found it too on most things should be cited. So if you're a, an intuitive person, there should, there's links to the journal articles because that was important to us that we, we didn't give you give data that was hypothetical. We really wanted to support it with there's sometimes not great studies, which we acknowledge, but at least give you a, a medical reference you can go to as well. Absolutely. Well, hey, thank you so much for your time today. This has been an awesome conversation. Thank you for everything that you've done in the field. And is there anything else you want to leave our audience with? I'll give you the platform here. Thank you as well. This has been a pleasure for me. And I think if, I, if anything, if you, you're diagnosed with atrial fibrillation or a loved one is, know that we have good treatments for it. There's a caring community. There's great patient advocacy groups, the Arrhythmia Alliance, stopafib.org. Get involved with them. Be your best advocate and, and take care of your body and ask questions. Don't be ashamed of asking questions. And if someone doesn't want to answer, then find another physician who, who will. And just also realize that it's like a lot of things in life, it's a bit of a journey. So if you have relapses or if you're working on lifestyle and you have relapses where you're not as good at other times, also be kind to yourself because it's when we look at age fibrillation, we need to look at 10, 20, 30 years to keep your brain healthy and your body healthy and your heart healthy. And we can do it together. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Jared Bunch, for all your time today and, and teaching us more about AFib and dementia. Thank you. All right. Well, thanks again for listening to another episode of the All Things AFib podcast. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Remember, you can catch more content at our website, allthingsafib.com, and check out our Twitter feed, at allthingsafib. So thanks again for listening, and until next time, stay regular, my friends. And now time for the obligatory disclaimer. All content on allthingsafib.com, including podcast and blog conversations, are meant for informational purposes only and is not intended as medical care and no doctor-patient relationship is formed. If you have a medical condition, you should seek out a medical professional for consultation. Any use of information from allthingsafib.com or its associated content is at the user's own risk.